Thank you for downloading The Pursuit Podcast. For more information on The Pursuit, visit thepursuitsoco.com. I was 17 years old, and it was the very first time I'd heard modern praise and worship after like going to church in the Midwest with organs and pianos. I used to worship my heart out to that song. I was right back with 1,100 kids at the Master's College, dude. Man, there's words. I am. I am. This gray hair came from somewhere, apparently. (laughs) Apparently. Well, I am glad to be with you this morning. We are going to transact some business. And before we start, I just want to pray for you quickly. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will come and send your Holy Spirit to fill this room and that you will minister to the hurts and that you will touch the hearts and that you will bring the deep healing that we need in relationships. We need you, God. We need your revival in this area. We are not enough. We wander so far. All right. Well, today I give you permission to be a couple of different things. Some of you today are going to need to be a kid. And some of you are going to need to be a grown-up. And some of you are going to need to be both. Because we're going to talk about one thing today. We're going to talk about relationships. And that relationships are the new revival. And you, being human have had pain in relationships since just after the day you were born. (laughs) And all that has happened is that that has grown in dimension and nuance. And some people in this room have had incredibly painful relationships. And some people have had discomfortable ones. Most of us have had both. And almost everybody is scarred and marked by them. And we come here and smile. And today, we're going to go some places that you just need permission to not wear the mask. You need permission to not wear the mask. And if that means that you need to be a little kid and feel something, that you have permission to do that. And if you need to be an adult and feel it, you can do that too. Safe space, safe people, safe time, safe God, safe Holy Spirit. Yeah? All right, let's do this thing. I'm going to start this morning in a fairly unconventional place for a message on relationships. In Psalm 46, verses 8 through 9, the Passion Translation says this, Everyone look, come and see the breathtaking wonders of our God, for he brings both ruin and revival. And he's the one who makes conflicts to end throughout the earth, breaking and burning every weapon of war. It's Psalm 46, 8 through 9. It's in the Passion. It'll read quite a bit differently in others, but this jumped out at me because he's the God of ruin and revival. Ruin? That doesn't preach super well. But, like, really, I mean, here's the thing. Ruin is the natural consequence for disobedience when we ignore God's warnings. It's more of a removal of grace than it is an institution of punishment. In other words, his grace and mercy are constantly softening the blow of what we're due to receive. 
And what happens is if he removes that grace because of our behavior, that it's not compatible with his grace, then we end up with the full wages for our behavior. And somebody say the wages of sin is? Yes. So the Israelites experienced this nationally, right? Like they were kind of a national object lesson and you can read Isaiah and, the, and all these terrible tragedies of like God tries and he so wants to be with his people, but they don't want to be with him and so he finally lets them be by themselves and then bad things happen. And that was true for them, but I have experienced this in relationship that there is ruin that can come in relationships when we ignore God's warnings and we don't take advantage of his wisdom. So as a young man, my Bible told me that children were a blessing and that blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. It told me that God works multi-generationally. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, he has things that are a much bigger arc than the span of my life in store. And one other thing that marks me is that I've always wanted whatever blessing God has. And that's a crazy thing to ask. Because I didn't understand what I was asking for. And it is very possible to ask God for things that we are ill-prepared to receive. Hmm. I hear a couple chuckles. Apparently, I'm not the only one who has done this. Asking God for blessing and simultaneously rejecting both his wisdom and natural wisdom is a recipe for disaster. God's blessing can crush you. It can crush me. Every blessing comes with responsibility and a burden of care. Accepting a blessing doesn't actually mean that we'll be blessed. And we won't be if we don't care for what we receive. My dad grew up uh, in a physically abusive home. The police were there regularly. It was a seriously bad situation. Um, and he broke this pattern. That was not the home that I grew up in, despite deep scarring and wounding. And he carried a bunch of that to his grave. There were a bunch of things that we couldn't talk about. There was relational closeness that couldn't happen. Like, that's just, that's just true. Um, as a young child, though, I mostly felt his anger. And I ended up kind of feeling very unworthy and in deeply insecure. Uh, we lived in financial lack compared to the people that we were around. Um, and... You know, I was buying all my own clothes by the age of 12, and at the age of 12, I made a bunch of crazy decisions. That's as old as Sarah is sitting right there. At the age of 12, I decided that I would take matters into my own hands, that I would get straight A's, be the valedictorian of my high school class, go to a good college, get a great job, and my family would never know lack. That was the plan. I was 12 years old, and I emancipated myself mentally. I was living at home, but I was already not there. And I decided that because I didn't really fit in super well socially coming back from Canada or on the mission field, feeling very rejected by other people, I just wrote people off. And I was going to be the island of Nathaniel against the world. Bring it. At 12. So I did that. I got straight A's. I was valedictorian in my high school class. I left a year early at 16 to go to college. 
um, I didn't have healing from any of my wounds. Not one. I had no instruction on how to raise a family. I didn't know anything about emotions, relationships, marriage, conflict, boundaries. These are all useful things, but I didn't know anything about any of them. But I did know how to work. I knew how to be smart. So I did that as hard as I could. At one company, they actually hired three people to replace me when I left. And that was actually a warning sign for me that maybe I'm doing this wrong. But the problem is this. I used to say that I could outwork anyone. And I did. I outworked everyone. I outworked my wife. I outworked my kids. At that time, I had no friends outside of work acquaintances. Like the relationships in my life were work relationships. This is where I put my time. It's where I put my attention. At that time, I said I didn't even live in Santa Rosa. I just slept here. Because I wasn't connected to the community in any meaningful way. I mean, at the worst of it, you, many people in here didn't know, but I would come to church on Sunday. I would leave from church. My bag was already packed in the car and drive to San Francisco, and I got home every Friday at midnight. I was home for 36 hours a week. Um, at that time, um, that was normal. And what do you think that produced? What is the fruit of that? Well, it broke my family. Literally broke it. Laura felt completely alone and abandoned with the kids. And she was, wasn't she? I mean, I'm home for 36 hours. How useful do you think I was for those 36 hours? Not very. And that resulted for her in clinical depression. Who caused that? Me. Yeah. My kids didn't have a father. Like, I was not present. Right? It's just true. One year, I spent over 200 nights in hotels. I was the top level for both Marriott and Hilton, simultaneously. These are not good goals. I won something, but it maybe wasn't what I wanted. So when I was home, the interesting thing was, I was an angry man. Maybe you have been an angry man or an angry woman, but I was an angry man, just like my dad. The reasons were probably different, but I was just as angry. And it was not producing useful things with my kids. You would be unsurprised to know. And it took a couple more years for the ruin to come to rest, but it did come. Because it will. It will. I had started to change about 10 years ago, but it was too little and too late. Because when you do big things wrong, there's big consequences, right? Mm. It's unfortunately true, but it is true. And our family fractured under the strain of two decades of dysfunction. Unhealed trauma, Inherited family patterns and stress had made a toxic and an unsafe environment for a family to be. And so it shattered five years ago. And rightfully so. 
Today, I don't have an active relationship with five of my eight kids. Three remain close, Karen and Joel, by the grace of God, a whole bunch of healing, counseling, and ridiculous amounts of grace on their part. And it is true that I don't deserve what I have. Because I did actually fail them all for years and years and years in the most basic duties of a father, to just be present, let alone to love them or protect them or to keep them. I paid for all their music lessons and their art lessons and all of the nonsense. I, I got that, but I did the least important things and not the most important things. And here's the interesting thing. My good intent wasn't enough. At any point in there, there was a point that I had a 200-year plan written down. Like, you want to do intent? I, I, I will win. I can intent. I had intent, but there was no wisdom. There was no performance against the wisdom. So did the intent matter? My kids would tell you it didn't, right? And they would be right. They would not be wrong. Trying to solve the problems that my parents left me on my own wasn't enough. Trying to just keep going and sort it out also did not work. Going to church did not work. Trying to be a good Christian family did not work. Trying to be a good husband didn't work. Isn't that interesting? Compared to all I wanted or intended, I failed completely. And that was evident in the results. Interesting, isn't it? And so, arguably, I'm actually not qualified to teach on this topic of relationships if historical performance is to be the measure. True? Reasonably true. And yet, who else in the room has unresolved emotional pain? Who has shattered relationships that don't seem to go back together and you don't even know how to start? Now, it could be their fault. It could be your fault. It could be both of your fault. Does it even matter whose fault it is? It doesn't, does it? Like in the shattering of the relationship, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. The pain is the brokenness of it, not who caused it. The lack of potential is due to the breakage, not due to who's more righteous than the other. The potential of the relationship is destroyed. Regardless. So, having experienced the ruin, I find myself in need of the revival. And I wonder if that is also true for you. That there is something that actually requires revival in the relationships that you have. 
So I'm actually here today, despite that story, to advocate for one thing, for one big idea. And that big idea is this, is that Jesus came to restore family relationships. It's literally what he came for. You say, how do you know? Because he wrote it in the book, conveniently. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Who is Elijah the prophet? Jesus. Right? They asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? No, I'm the one who prepares the way for him. I'm talking, this is a prophecy about Jesus. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. What? Why is he coming to do this? So he will not strike the land with complete destruction. He's fundamentally about this family business, even though we are so bad at it. He's still about it. Everything about restoring families is in his heart. What's the example that he gives us? The parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the father's heart. However you want to say it, what's that about? It's about healing a family relationship. And why does he say that? Well, he wants us to be part of his family, but it's so human because that's normal. It resonates for us because we understand that. Maybe we were the prodigal. Maybe we created the prodigal. Whatever. It resonates for us. God is a multi-generational God, even with seriously messed up families. We started out well with Adam and Eve. One brother killed the other one. Even the Kardashians haven't messed it up that bad. (laughs) Right? Like, that's how the book opens. Abraham has a son with his servant, messes up their whole family, and we have a billion people at odds with another group of people still today because of that messed up little bit. King David has an affair, kills somebody, and then his son starts a war, a civil war to you know, put the kingdom into. Like, this is drama. And yet... God is a multi-generational God who wanted to work through all of those families as broken, shattered, dysfunctional as they were. So if you have problems with relationships, apparently God is not so put out. He's not that put out that he would reject you or your kids, or your family, or your parents, or your grandkids, however it goes for you. So what is revival? I mean, literally, it's from the Latin, right? It's from re, and then vivo, or vivus, which is life. So it's re-life. It's re-alive. So it's something that's dead, and that's an interesting thing about revival. You can't have revival unless something has actually died. Isn't that interesting? 
oh, so there might be a Costa revival at Asbury. Oh, there might be. What's the price? The price is the people losing their stuff on stage, confessing their sins before their whole peer group. Something's dying. And in that death, what can happen? New life, right? Like the butterfly, the chrysalis, like this, this pattern occurs. Yeah, okay. So, if you also have a dead relationship in your life, one that's hurting, that's broken, that needs more than a coffee and an apology to fix, right? Like, those are pretty easy. But if you really have one that needs new life, revivification, how does that go? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, humans are made to be in relationship. What I believed at 12 that I could just shut the world out, not do relationships, and that I wouldn't be in pain. It's not true. That's just a different kind of pain. Right? Yes. I mean, right in the, in the, in the garden we have, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for woman to be alone either. The Trinity itself is a relationship. Like God gives us an example of not being alone and how he expresses himself to us. We don't really fully understand it or get it, but he's not alone. The early church in Acts was nothing but community to the point that they even had their goods in common. And he... The psalmist says that family unity is particularly important. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. And the word brothers is actually bigger than family. It's not literally just brothers. But we understand that, don't we? Like, is anything better than when your family is working right and everybody's having a good time? There's nothing better. There's nothing better, especially cousins. I don't know why cousins are so good, but cousins are often particularly good. Like the parents all go away and talk about boring things and then there's just hours of play with people that are strangely like you but yet not you. <laughs> right? Like cousins are freaking awesome. Like family's good when it's, when it's together. Now, like we're made for relationship but how many would say that relationships are hard? that they're probably actually the hardest thing that we do. Mostly because there's other people in them. <laughs> but nonetheless, they're the hardest thing that we do. Why is that? I'm going to suggest to you that it primarily comes down to one thing. It's the willfulness of man. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Man, I thought I was doing right. I thought I was doing good. Like, there were problems in my family, so if I did the opposite of those things, then surely I would fix them. It seemed right to me. So I did it hard. But the end was the way of death. What died? Well, the family died. That's what died. Relationship died. Right. So the interesting thing 
that I want to do here is talk a little bit about anger inside of families and inside of relationships. Um, this is such a big deal that it even hits our popular culture, Ted Bundy, sitcoms. What's the commonality across all of these things? Who's angry in every sitcom? The dad. The dad's always angry, isn't he? Mm. Or stupid. And why would the dad be angry if the dad was stupid? They're, they're linked, actually. They're linked. I'm going to suggest to you that if you're the angry dad or you're the angry mom, the actual issue is identity. When you don't know who you are, everything's a threat to your identity. The happiness of other people implies that you're broken. And if other people give you feedback, tell you you're not doing something well, it's an existential threat. Because you don't know what your actual core is. You don't know who you actually are. Because once you know who you actually are and who God's made you to be, not much else matters. But until then, every little thing can rock your boat. And if you're threatened, what do you do? You push back. How do we push back? Anger. The little kids do this. You try stealing their toy. How fast does the anger flare? Right? It's real. And so, if you find yourself very angry very often in the presence of the people around you, there's something that God wants to do to tell you who you are and what you mean to him. Because that's the actual freedom from the anger. You're not actually mad at your kids. You're not actually mad at how happy they are. You're desperately afraid that you're not enough. And it's a lot. You may need help to see that, get it. It may be a journey to find it. It's worth it. It's not a way you have to live. Jesus died so it didn't have to be that way. So, if we're going to have a revival, new life in relationships, and this is not going to come apparently through us just doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. He hurt me. I'm going to key his car. Right? Like, what's the first reaction that we often get in hurtful relationships? It's self-defense, harm you. One of the two, and usually both. It's first self-defense, I'm awesome, you're clearly a problem, I attack you. 
fangs and claws, right? So if that's the default, and we know that the wages of that is, is not going to go well for us, the proverb tells us there's a way that seems right to us, but it's, it's actually not going to produce life in our relationships. What do we need? We actually need wisdom. My people perish for lack of wisdom. Yes. What I had intent, but I didn't have wisdom. I didn't have skill. The Hebrews were particularly big about understanding. You'll see that word wisdom and understanding. They're, like they're linked together. And the idea was that wisdom was practical, like you live wisdom. Understanding is like knowledge. Like you go to school and get knowledge, like two plus two is four. But wisdom is, if I treat RC well, we can have a great relationship, right? That's the difference. So wisdom is actually not just knowing things. It's actually being able to live things. And so what I want to do is give us some strategies for better relationship. Because how is the new life going to form? How is the new life going to be fertilized? through wisdom, through doing it actually God's way and not the broken default way that we might imagine in our hearts. So here's the deal. Healthy people can have healthy relationships. Broken people really can't. And healthy people can extend healing to hurting people. That's how it goes. That little bit about put your oxygen mask on before helping the passenger next to you, it's particularly important for relationships. I'm sorry, but it is true. We've heard it said that hurting people hurt people. Everybody nods their head. Why? It's kind of true. It's kind of true. We've all done it. We have both been hurt by a hurting person and we have also probably all hurt somebody being a hurt person, in small or large measure. One of the things that must happen to us is that we actually get to live Romans chapter 12, where it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, I've been uh, doing some research on what it takes to change your mind. Um, like, what's the psychology of it and what's the actual physical brain chemistry of mindset change? Because obviously, if you can help people to change their mind, man, what a thing that would be, right, as a teacher, as someone who teaches even professionally. Um, so I'm reading this book on the brain, and it turns out that much of what we were all told, if you're of a certain age, um, about the brain is wrong. How many people were told that like you get a certain number of brain cells and then at a certain point you don't get any more? And like they just, it's like a downward slope from there. How many people were told that? Almost everybody. Because that's what people believe since at least the 50s or 60s. It's not true. It's, there's only one problem. It's just not true. In the last 15 years, advances have made it possible to learn all kinds of things about the brain that were not known before. How many people were told that neuroplasticity, that is the ability of the brain to learn new things, declines over time once you're through like seven or eight years old, 15 years old, 20 years old? Lots of people have been told that, yes? It's just not true. It's actually not true at all. The brain will retain full neuroplasticity as long as it's exercised. 
just like the muscles in your body. If you don't do anything with them, eventually you can't stand and then you fall over and break hips, right? And the fact is our minds are the exact same way. They will form new neural pathways. What is happening right now, just from the sound of my voice, new neural connections are forming in your brain. You will leave here with your brain not the same as when you came in. Like, it's crazy. So here's the thing. It is literally our job as kingdom citizens to rewire our brains. For them to change, for new neural pathways to form that actually support different kinds of behaviors, our brain controls our emotions, it controls all the hormones in our body that affect our organ systems. Our frontal cortex can actually cause, we can think about things and it changes how we feel. It changes our actions. Here's the interesting thing. Where do we get our initial brain wiring from? God, maybe. High school biology, how do kids happen? We actually have this DNA that comes from two parents. The initial wiring of the human brain comes from the expression of DNA. We literally inherit the initial wiring of our brain from our parents. This is now science that I'm telling you. When parents have trauma, hurts, and other things that their brains are wired around, what do they pass on to you? They pass the genetic pathways that made that brain. And so when it says that the sins of the fathers pass to the children, in secular scientific textbooks, they quote that verse about this aspect of brain development. We literally inherit a base programming of our brain. So when you... Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, they're just like their parents? Or he's just like his great uncle. That attitude? Man, or like it's something innocuous, like they laugh just like so-and-so, right? Their hair is just like so-and-so. Well, guess what? Their brain wiring is just like so-and-so. And you know who else this is true of? Every person here. So this has profound implications for relationships. If you're literally born into the world, carrying some of the broken wiring of your parents that was not functional and did not serve them well, how well is that programming going to work for you? Maybe not so well. Now, you mix your own traumas in there and the things that you experience and how many are now aware that, boy, it might be nice to rewire a few of those circuits. And so when the scripture says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, I want you to think of that as literal. 
like that we're literally going to change the connections of things in our head. And that is going to cause our emotions to flow differently. That's going to enable us to deal with other people more gracefully because our whole system is going to be regulated in a different way. This is the actual promise of the gospel. So, Jesus came to restore family relationships. First verse, back in Micah, right? Part of that is restoring you as an individual. He can't heal your family trauma until you first bring your own for healing. Each of us is responsible to do that. You see, processing my trauma gives me space and grace for others to process trauma with me and me not be triggered. It's necessary. If I'm still holding my trauma, I can't be present for people who need to bring the trauma that I've caused them. I need to be the one with grace, right? The day has to come when it's their turn to process fully and for me to be able to receive that. So how do we actually do that? If you need to heal trauma and you're old enough to be in the sound of my voice and it's not healed, chances are you need help. I'm just saying. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human. Human. Well, what kind of help? Probably another human. <laughs> Somebody that has the wisdom that you don't. I've personally gotten a massive amount of help from a, a treatment modality called IFS, Internal Family Systems. Um, it's, it's something that deals with how you deal with inner hurt. No treatment modality works for every person. We are all different. We have different makeups, backgrounds, other things. I'm not talking about general talk therapy where you hire a friend. I'm not talking about that kind of therapy. That kind of therapy is fine, by the way. No, no bones about it. But there are therapy modalities and people, deliverance ministries, other things that actually focus on healing trauma. And I'm deeply sorry if your family was broken, if you were physically, emotionally, or otherwise abused or neglected or mistreated. It's not right. But healing is available. It will be expensive. And I don't mean that in money. I mean that in hurt. Because the way that trauma is healed is, is that we take the deepest, most poignant pain and we share it with God, who we're desperately afraid will reject us and judge us and deem us unworthy. And when he does not, it shatters us. That's what happens. And out of that shattering, just one of the more painful things that can happen to you, then you feel the love of the Father in a way you've never felt it before, and your life changes. It's not an easy path. It's just necessary. It's necessary. 
So I would encourage you to first find healing for trauma. That is something that will change the wiring in your brain. Things that are scenes that play for you over and over and over again will stop. Negative things and patterns that happen in your brain will stop. That chatter doesn't have to be in your head anymore. Jesus died for it, and it'll probably take human help to do it if you're sitting here and it hasn't happened so far. I give you grace to go down that journey and to need help and companionship for making it. It's okay if you need a friend to help you go on that journey. You might need two. It's okay. Take them. Go. The second thing that you need to transform your mind is you need to learn how to process emotion in real time. Emotions build relationship when they're communicated in a healthy fashion. Which emotions? All of them. Joy, lonely, sad, hurt. It doesn't matter which one. If you can communicate those emotions to the people around you and they communicate theirs to you in real time, you will be closer. That's how we get closer is we communicate our emotions inside of relationship. When this happens, resentment is checked at the source. As soon as we're hurt, we say so. There's no buildup of anything. And misunderstandings are resolved immediately. The connections code stuff is just magic for this. I don't know any other way to say it. It's transformed my family and how we communicate at the dinner table, how we communicate during the week. Like, I don't even know. I mostly just feel like, where was this 20 years ago? Like I was living in the dark ages. Like there's no indoor plumbing. Like it's, it's that significant of a thing that there's these easy tools to make relationships flow. Um, so I don't know what to tell you, except we do need to learn how to process emotion in real time. The third thing is, is forgiveness. And I want to talk about forgiveness for a moment. Matthew 20, 23 is a fascinating scripture. It says that if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Other translations, most of them say retained. If you retain the sins of another person, they are retained. Weird. Like, if we don't forgive each other's sins, they are retained. What does that mean? Is God giving us control over sin? Not exactly, but significantly so. If, what are the wages of sin again? Somebody tell me. Death. Okay, so... When sin happens, a ticket for death is produced. Ding! Get a ticket. And the interesting thing about this ticket is that two people get the ticket. The person who does the sin gets the ticket, and a ticket gets handed to the person that I hurt. And this is where things get absolutely fascinating. So if you hold a ticket for sin, what are you holding a ticket for? Death. All it's redeemable for is death. That ticket sin can't be used for anything else. It's a dollar bill that only buys death. So if 
I hurt Steve. I don't know why I would. You're a really nice guy. But say I do. And so I hand you the ticket for, for sin, and I keep one for myself. Because like I've actually violated something between me and God that's different than what I've done with you. So your ticket's a little different than mine, but you got one. Because do you feel as close to me? No. It doesn't matter like if it's something simple or if it's something horrid, like I keyed your car. Like whatever it is to the severity, it'll break the relationship to that because of this death ticket that you got a part of that you didn't even ask for. I gave it to you for free. <laughs> messed up. These relationships, man, they are messed up. Okay, so the interesting thing is when we sin against each other, the death flows in two directions. Like there's a flow from whoever the offender is towards God and towards the other person, and the other person has a fascinating choice. They've received a ticket, and they get to choose what to do with it. The wages of sin are always death. The sinner gets the dead consequences of their action. You violate the rules of heaven, you get heaven's consequences. So that's the spiritual death that we all understand. The offended person, the person that gets sinned against, receives hurt. And in keeping it, gets death in the relationship, small or large. Like maybe it's a bad cold. It's a small flu. Forgiveness clears your personal balance sheet so that there's no retained death on it. That's what it actually does. And the interesting thing about forgiveness is it has nothing to do with the other person. The person who sinned can receive forgiveness without the other person at all. The person who's been sinned against can forgive without the original person changing at all or experiencing the slightest remorse. Each person has something on their balance sheet and forgiveness is the thing that clears the balance sheet. This is why people say that bitterness is drinking poison hoping the other person dies. So that means that forgiveness basically is releasing their offense to no longer receive its bitter fruit. It's basically taking the sting of the hurt and releasing it so that you don't carry it anymore. So when Jesus says that the sins are retained, if you retain them, do you want them? Do you want the hurt that you have received? I hope not. There's only one thing that it brings. It's death. This is why we should be quick to forgive each other and ourselves. Mm. Forgiveness, however, does not imply restoration. It doesn't bring new life. The whole, like, you know, parents make you forgive your sister for hitting you. That doesn't bring new relationship, does it? It does not. Forgiveness can operate without resolution for either party. That's the important thing to realize. It's fascinating. 
Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. There's actually a restoration process that's not about forgiveness. It's actually about restoration, about making it right or learning a new way, being a different person. I'm personally so thankful for Joyce Farinato. She saw the train wreck coming a mile away. And she stood in the mess and tried to help anyway. She lived this verse. She is the reason that I can stand here today. No question. Without her living this verse, I might not be married. I might not even be walking in the faith. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Because I received grace, I could grow and learn to walk in it. Her active example and intervention produced more change in my life than decades of church attendance. The kingdom's mediated by people. The help you needs in other people. I mean, is your headspace really doing the job when you think about it over and over and over again and play the game films? Is it really helping? And how about this? Do you want to live by the Spirit? Oh, yeah, I want to be Spirit-filled. Do you? Help restore someone from a massive fall from grace. That's what the verse actually says. You are spiritual, restore one. That's where the gospel comes alive. It's in the redemption of people, pulling them back from the brink, from their worst tendencies, from their lack of wisdom, from their horrible sins, from their great wickedness, their, their tremendous inadequacies, their utter failures, and their moral bankruptcy. That is the actual gospel. And the actual work of Christian people is to restore all that brokenness because that is what Jesus actually came to die for, was to bring the world to himself, to make it on earth as it is in heaven. This is the point. And if we are ambassadors of the kingdom, it is this relational work that is actually the most important work we do. Yes? Yes. You see, God is the one who turns hearts. Our part is to be relationally capable, to actually change our minds, to be able to have relational skills, to get our traumas fixed, to forgive ourselves and others, to keep a clean balance sheet. And then he can turn hearts. We need to be full of grace and willing to acknowledge and repent for our mistakes and errors quick to forgive, and patient with the process and boundaries that others need to feel safe. The thing you need to realize is that boundaries are what enable the restoration of relationships. Boundaries are not bad. Boundaries are the thing that make new relationships possible. Is it possible for me to have an immediately awesome relationship with my fractured relationship with my children? No, it's not possible. Is it safe for them? It is not. 
How do they develop trust in the new? With time. With demonstrated emotional competence. With demonstrated care. Who needs the boundaries? They do. Who else needs the boundary? I do. Right? Boundaries are good. They're what help facilitate this process. Unconditional love does not equal unlimited access or no boundaries. Trust is earned and demonstrated over time. And revived relationships grow over time, even if there's a big healing moment. There's room for process in your life and in mine. So we need revival in our relationships, I think. Do you? I do. Does anyone else need to have their brain actually rewired? Yeah. And so back at the beginning, I said, I give you permission to be a small child, to be a grown adult, to be anywhere in the middle. Did you receive pain? Probably. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you received pain from people you loved. Did you cause pain? If you're a parent, you sure did somewhere. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you weren't good enough. And I'm sorry that you can't be. If your actions or your inactions have broken relationships with people you care deeply about, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter whether it was a good cause or a bad cause, does it? They're still broken. I'm sorry you had to be right. I'm sorry I had to be right. Is there anyone else who would like this revival more than an hour of laying on the floor with good worship music playing? Right? Like, like what would actually make a difference in your life? Like quality difference. So when we say that relationships are the new revival, would you cry out for that? What about that new life being birthed in you? An ability to connect to the people close to you. I think that would be important. It would be really important. And so, I think we need to pray into it. There's people in the room that maybe you can hear my voice and it gives you a step towards going and getting some help. There may be people in the room that realize, man, I just got to up my game. I actually need better tools. I, I, like I'm not capable of holding awesome relationships, but I could get better tools. You might be carrying hurts. You need to forgive them and get the death off your books because it's not serving you, actually. It's destroying you. Hold that in your hearts. Would you come and help us pray, Elijah?
Because we do, we need to go after it. Like what God's talking to you about is not minor. It's actually revival in your soul, in your spirit. It's this new life that needs to birth. Thank you for listening to The Pursuit Podcast. For more information about The Pursuit, visit us at thepursuitsoco.com.